Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nails and Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you're actually tuned into our Citation Classics yet again. But now we have a new, a new field in store, a new specialty in store that we're uh, that we're going to start, and we're going to start with some adult reconstruction. And we have the adult reconstruction team that's actually going to uh, talk to you all a little bit more. They they did a great job on this episode. They talked a little bit about periprosthetic joint infections. Uh, some voices on this episode will sound familiar for those of you that are longtime listeners. Now we have some new voices. Uh, we have Dr. Hassan Farouk, who is joining us. We have Dr. Sohan Patel, and we have student doctors Zoo and Blackwood. Uh, but without further ado, go ahead and enjoy this episode. If you are a visual learner, check out the YouTube channel and take a look at some of the slides that they put together. They did a great job doing this. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Nailed It podcast. Here we're starting a new series called Citations Classics, but with adult reconstruction as our focus. Our first episode is a, is a broad topic where we're focusing on periprosthetic joint infections. My name is Hassan Farouk. I'm a PGY2 resident here in Chicago at Loyola University. I'm joined here with a few of my friends as well who are going to introduce themselves here. Hey everybody, I'm Soham Patel, PGY4 at Indiana University. You may uh, have heard my voice before on the Nailed It Citation Classics Spine Edition, but moving over to the adult reconstruction team. Hey everyone, I'm Nigel Blackwood, fourth year med student at Tulane. Thanks everyone. I also want to shout out another member of our team, Kai Zhu. He's a medical student out of Washington State University, who was a big contribution to the presentation here tonight as well. We'll just keep going. So I'm just going to do a little background on uh, periprosthetic joint infections because it's a broad topic and then we'll get going into our articles. All right. So we're going to try to make this as streamlined as possible, but I want to give you guys a little background on why we care about prosthetic joint infections, or as we're going to refer to it as PJI. So specifically for hip and knee replacement, you guys have to understand that this is an elective surgery. So patients are choosing to have this operation to improve their quality of life. So any complication is already a, a big deal, but infection has significant implications of morbidity and mortality, as well as an economic impact, because the way we treat it, as you'll find out, is generally with multiple rounds of surgery and, and long-term antibiotics, it can get extremely expensive and burdensome to the healthcare system. In addition to that, it can also you know, lead to systemic illness, sepsis, hem hemodynamic collapse, and reduced quality of life. And it can be, really be problematic in these patients. So this is why we care. And then Hassan's going to start us off with our first paper on how we define PJI. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We're going to start with our first paper here. It was titled 2018 Definition of Periprosthetic Hip and Knee Infection and Evidence-Based and Validated Criteria, a paper done with Parvizi and his group, published in Journal of Arthroplasty in 2018. Just quick additional background information. Diagnosing PJIs is a difficult and there's really no one-stop shop test that can kind of confer whether someone, yay, has a periprosthetic joint infection or nay, doesn't. So in 2013, previously, MSIS group, which is an international infection group, they endorsed a consensus definition of what they considered to be suspicious for periprosthetic joint infection. These factors included like a sinus tract, two positive cultures, or three out of five of the following criteria. These included inflammatory markers being elevated in the serum, synovial cell count, elevated PMNs, positive histology, and single cult, uh, culture positive. 
However, this group in 2018 wanted to further look into this and they conducted this study for the purposes of generating a more weight-adjusted scoring system for defining PJIs. Uh, they also wanted to externally validate their scoring system. Um, and finally, they wanted to compare this newly proposed scoring system compared to this previous one that was reported in 2013. They conducted a retrospective review of all revision total knee arthroplasties and total hip arthroplasties. This was from three different large level one trauma centers from the years 2001 to 2016. They did not include patients that had missing data or, for example, didn't have serum labs or an aspiration attempted upon initial diagnosis. They also didn't look at acute PJIs, so anything less than three months was excluded in their inclusion criteria. Um, and finally, if you didn't meet any of those major MSIS criteria, such as having a sinus tract noted or two positive cultures of the same one organism, virulence, the patient, the, these patients weren't included and were actually ex excluded from the cohort. This is a large chart here that kind of goes over this new criteria that was defined by this group in 2018. They kept the major criteria kind of similar to what was previously described, but two positive cultures of the same organism, and evidence of a sinus tract with a communication to the joint or visualization of the prosthesis were considered major criteria for the decision to determine PJI. Um, they developed additional minor criteria here, um, and these included previously described elevated inflammatory markers, so CRP or ESR, and each of these had a weighted score given to them that would contribute to a final score that would be calculated. Additionally, in the synovium, they looked at uh, elevated synovial white count or leukocyte esterase, as well as positive alpha defensin, elevated synovial PMN percentage, and then elevated synovial CRP. A point to take note is that, which was new for this criteria, was this group highlighted in uh, the blue or purple there. If the score added up to about two to five or possibly infected, these were later required to have a interoperative diagnosis using some of the following criteria. So it looks for positive histology, positive purulence, or singular positive culture. And again, I'll point you to the, the bold there uh, that noted four to five score to be inconclusive. And at this point, the study directed the providers to look into next-gen sequencing or further DNA slash RNA testing. Um, the interesting thing about this was the sensitivity and specificity of this new scoring system was over 95%. So sensitivity was 97.7 and specificity was 99.5. So very well constructed algorithm by this group. Uh, finally, what the conclusions mainly were was this was the first externally validated evidence-based criteria for diagnosing PJI after total joint arthroplasty. This is more of a useful approach uh, during the preoperative phase. If you look at the initial one that was described in 2013, a lot of those criteria can't really be seen until you're actually in the case or intraoperatively. This kind of new uh, algorithm allowed for providers to have more information preoperatively before going into the surgery. It also talked about this new gray area where you may not have a conclusive confirmation or even conclusive hint that this is PGI, so that they had further characteristics of what you can look for interoperatively to help kind of lead you to that direction. And finally, it was the first time, I think, uh, that they were looking at talking into further testing for things that even then aren't even determined intraoperatively. So this is stuff using next-gen sequencing, which is not the topic of tonight's conversation, but it further looks at DNA and RNA testing 
However, the study still has its limitations. We, they didn't really study patients that had acute PJIs. However, it does talk about the relevancy of using these in patients that develop infection early in their postoperative period. Um, again, this is a tool to help in diagnosis and not necessarily to help uh, you know, physicians order testing. So it shouldn't be used as, as a guide for testing, but rather help you for diagnosis purposes after you've already had these tests completed. Another limitation could be that they included hips and knees altogether in this cohort. So that could be an additional thing to consider when looking at study limitations. So, do um, you have any comments to add to any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think you did a fantastic job uh, presenting this. This is a, a landmark paper and something that we reference uh, daily in arthroplasty clinic when diagnosing PJIs. In, in what I've seen in my clinical experience thus far is a lot of patients show up with sinus tracts. So luckily we get that major criteria. And then we often end up taking aspirates and trying to get those two cultures and, and trying to make it with those major criteria. But we do use the, the minor criteria pretty often. And we're, we are sending alpha defense in uh, leukocyte esterase. I've seen a urine dipstick used as a surrogate for that uh, leukocyte esterase as well. But the way I think about a sinus tract is interesting is you have an infection in the body and the infection can either go into your systemic circulation and, and cause sepsis or it, the body can expel it. So that's kind of where a sinus tract comes from. It's a pathway for that pus to leak out into the world and not go into your bloodstream. And just for the people out there that have never seen one, that's essentially a good way to think about it. And that is a pathognomonic for a PJI in the setting of a prosthetic joint, if you see that. Uh, and then in talking about acute PJIs, I think you mentioned their criteria was three months. And that's the, I think, CDC's definition of acute versus chronic PJI. Um, but practically and, and clinically, I think uh, most people use a four to six week cutoff at, at our institution. Generally speaking, um, four weeks after surgery is when we start thinking about things as more of a chronic PJI, uh, because based on some of the basic science literature, that's when we get biofilm formation and the treatment algorithm changes. Three months was probably so they could meet CDC guidelines, uh, but just for clinical framework, I would think of acute as within four to six weeks of surgery and chronic after that. Sounds good. Thanks for those add-ons. We'll move on to our next paper here, titled Two-Stage two Exchange Protocol for Periprostatic Joint Infection, uh, following total knee arthroplasty and 245 knees without prior treatment for infection. Uh, this is a paper published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in 2019, uh, and it includes Dr. Abdel's group. Just some background, obviously, we've already discussed this in some detail, but PJI is, a, is one of the most devastating outcomes following total knee arthroplasty, and, and this is devastating not only for the patient, but I, I believe there are many studies that talk about how devastating it is for the surgeon who ends up with this outcome as well. Gold standard has been described as two-stage exchange as the form of treatment for a periprostatic joint infection. There's been a lot of variable rates reported in literature describing how well patients do following this treatment for a joint infection and how many of these go on to later never develop a subsequent infection or some sort of complication required revision surgery. So these rates range from about 80 to 95%. Uh, however, a lot of these studies that reported this range in the past have been kind of confounded and don't have much data on previous treatments for these patients that were included in their studies. So the purpose of this study was essentially to determine long-term reinfection rates for total knee arthroplasty, specifically complicated by PJI. However, none without any previous infection treatment. This was a very important point in developing the cohort for the study. So this was a retrospective review done at a single institution where they looked at knee, knee replacement surgery cases that 
went on to have treatment with two-stage revision from 1991 to 2006, had about 630 cases included initially. And then after exclusions, much many of these were due to having previous infection treatment prior to this two-stage revision, which makes the study kind of novel. There's only 245 cases left for the analysis. So again, you know, they use the MSIS criteria to diagnose the PJI. I think it's important to talk a little bit about this two-stage revision and what that entails. So initially, what well, the first stage essentially is where the implant is removed or resected, followed by a very thorough debridement and irrigation, and then a placement of an antibiotic spacer. That's kind of your stage one. After stage one, you go on to have about, on average, four to six weeks of IV antibiotics, typically directed by our infectious disease colleagues. And then there's a time period where you have about five weeks of an antibiotic holiday. And typically, patients will also have a clinical evaluation to determine that we have kind of eradicated this infection prior to proceeding to that second stage reimplantation. At least in this study, follow-up was about three months, one year, two years, five years, and then every five years to follow after that. Results for a study included a reinfection rate in these 245 cases at one year to be 4.1%, 9.5% at two years, 14.2% at five years, and then it tailored off there, tapered off there at 16% after 10 years. At the final follow-up for all these patients, only 41 knees went on to be reinfecting. They looked at risk factors amongst these cases that may be associated with reinfection or help predict a patient that may go on to be reinfected following two-stage. And what they found to be notable was anybody with a BMI greater than or equal to 30, having any history of prior revision surgery in their clinical course prior to this two-stage division, and then McPherson horse grade of a C lended patients to be more uh, likely to uh, fail this two-stage and require a, a another subsequent intervention for infection. What was interesting as well is the Nice Society score for these patients uh, improved from 45 at diagnosis of infection to 76 um, at 10 years. So obviously that 31 point jump is quite significant. And that tells you about how, you know, impactful or I guess a negative, how deleterious an infection is to patients when it comes to their overall functional status. Some of these conclusions are is, you know, after 15 years of cumulative data, the instance of reinfection after PJI was noted to be 17% in these patients. Obesity, history of vision surgery, and poor hosts were predictors, as I mentioned previously. The study had really strong strengths in that it was very selective in its cohort. There were uh, limitations on confounding factors, such as previous treatment method methods. Um, however, there are limitations to know. Uh, re being retrospective lends itself to being less le standardizable and then being a sin uh, single institution, uh, generalizability to other institutions can be questionable as well. Uh, how do you guys feel about this study? What comments do you guys got? Yeah, I, I think this is an excellent study. I mean, the Mayo Clinic is the, the pinnacle of excellent research. And I think just a caveat for anybody listening out there, it's important to understand that the current treatment of PJI is a hot topic of discussion at all the national meetings and somewhat controversial in the eyes of a few people. The gold standard in North America is currently a two-stage exchange for chronic PJI. So these were chronic PJI patients, two-stage being what Hassan discussed at the beginning of this presentation. But there are places in the world where they are treating chronic PJIs with a single-stage exchange where they go into the OR, 
you know, do a thorough debridement, rip out all the infected implants, close the incision, reprep, redrape, and then reimplant clean implants with a whole new set of clean instruments, new gowns, new gloves, and everything like that. And they do show some decent numbers and, and survivorship of these single stage exchange, but there are uh, confounders in those studies as well, where they're selecting hosts, very healthy hosts. And as this study shows, we know poor hosts are likely to be reinfected. So I think that's why I picked the studies. They didn't exclude poor hosts and they were honest about their numbers. There's still a 17% reinfection rate, but that's pretty good. So I don't know. I think it's important to just understand how things are treated in different parts of the world, but currently in North America, two-stage. And at my institution, what I see is that's their gold standard for chronic PGIs. Yeah. That kind of follows suit is what we do here at Loyola as well. We're still pretty, there's definitely some newer talks about one and a half stage and stuff that someone's talking about as well, but we, we're still doing a lot of this two-stage protocol here at Loyola. Going on to this next paper here, we're looking at two-stage exchange arctoplasty for infected total neoarctoplasty, looking at predictors of failure. This is a paper from with Dr. Parvizi as a senior author. It was published in Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research in 2011. Just more background again, we'll move forward as we discuss the two stages, the gold standard treatment. And there is, again, that variability, but this paper cites an even broader range of effectiveness you know, as compared to the previous one. And the goal of this paper was to look at what variables may influence the outcomes after two-stage exchange. And this might be helpful because we can help with not only patient selection, but also guiding patients on effective treatment options for them. So this looked at patients, surgical patient factors, surgical, surgical factors, and even factors that the surgeon may control as well. The methodology was, this is a retrospective review at a single institution. It used their total joints database, essentially patients that went under this two-stage exchange um, from 1997 to 2007, uh, had 117 patients that were included. Again, their protocol was very similar to the previously described protocol. And what they were looking for as recurrence, rate of recurrence of the failure of the treatment was anything needing further treatment for a PJI. And they looked at factors, again, that may predict this failure of treatment or recurrence of infection. 28% of their cases required subsequent treatment for infection. And in their univariate model, what they found to be significant included intraoperative findings of purulent slash sinus tract during first stage, and then obviously positive tissue culture. If we think back to the, the MSIS criteria from the beginning of the talk, both of these points are part of the major criteria. So I guess this was kind of it was nice to reproduce that in the study because it showed how important those two factors are in the diagnosis of PJI. When they did a multivariate analysis, what they found to be predictors was negative culture, meaning this is predictors of failure again, was people that had negative cultures and that was significant in their, in their analysis. What they also saw was patients that were methicillin resistant organisms that were cultured were also more likely to fail in this treatment. And then finally, increased operative time at reimplantation was significant for them in their multivariate analysis. Conclusions here is a combination of factors should be assessed before reimplantation. Interesting enough, ESR, CRP at that interstage point. So following antibiotics after the first stage and having a holiday of antibiotics, surgeons that test the synovial fluid for ESR, CRP to decide if patients are ready for implantation may want to reconsider that because it's, it wasn't significant in the analysis and rather there's a combination of factors that you should consider. Additionally, as many patients go under preoperative clearance prior to surgeries, it was noted that comorbidities and 
medical problems in patients that may have seemed to be important and maybe predict failure did not really show that here in their study. Uh, that's an important point that you may otherwise think otherwise. Limitations from the study is that there's a single tertiary referral center. So a lot of these patients were coming to them for treatment after they had previously been treated um, elsewhere. And there's some selection bias there to their patient population. Uh, it's again, a retrospective study with missing data inevitably. Um, and finally, there is a limited sample size, the total number of cases, only a handful. So there's a chance that the, the, you know, the power of the study is limited and maybe significant differences in variables are just not able to be determined given their sample size. And finally, there wasn't really generalization with what kind of protocol surgeons followed both pre, in, uh, post and treatment. So there's, you know, variability of how surgeons went about their treatment, which adds to some of the limitations to this paper. I'll give you a second here. So about what are your thoughts to this one? Yeah, I think that at least to me, the take home point for this was that culture negative PGIs represent a, a monster in and of itself, because as common sense would say, we don't have an organism for our infectious disease colleagues to aim antimicrobial treatment towards. So it, it adds a whole level of challenge into eradicating infection. So I think that's, if there's one take home point from this, I would say culture negative PGI, obviously MRSA, a virulent organism we know is, is hard to treat. That's my take home point, at least from this study. Awesome. We'll keep moving here. Someone's got a few now to talk about with us all. Yeah, it's a perfect transition into my first paper. So I'm going to talk about swab cultures are not as effective as tissue cultures for diagnosis of PGI. This was published out of the Rothman Group in CORE. Uh, published in 2013, and this was a prospective cohort study looking at the effectiveness of intraoperative swab versus actual tissue samples in diagnosis of PGI. Like we just mentioned, culture-negative PGI is a, an issue and makes antibiotic treatment more challenging, and we know it's a predictor of failure of treatment. There is no consensus on the best way to obtain samples where, as we know, at the time this was published, diagnosed PGI. This is prior to the modified, you know, the updated 2018 MSIS criteria. The reason people liked using swab cultures is because it's cheap. They're readily available in the OR, the Q-tip swabs, and they're quote unquote sterile. And then issues with issues with the swab cultures that they can be easily contaminated and you're not getting a ton of volume of sample as you're just wiping tissue or an implant. So those are the reasons pro and con for swabs. So the way that this group approached this was a prospective study. They looked at a consecutive series of 156 revision arthroplasties between 2011 and 2012. This was a combination of septic and aseptic revisions, which they defined using the 2013 MSIS criteria. That's how they determined whether they, or not they were septic. So the septic ones met infectious criteria and the aseptic ones did not. Those were for things like aseptic loosening, osteolysis polyethylene wear, et cetera. Then intraoperatively, they had a protocol. If there was synovic, they attempted to aspirate the joints, knees and hips, and if they could aspirate fluid, they would send fluid for culture. And then they obtained samples from swabbing, systematically swabbing either acetabular femoral tissue and hips, and then tibular femoral tissue and knees, and then collecting synovial tissue from around uh, the acetabular knee and sending that in all the cases. And then they looked at the results of the cultures and determined sensitivity, specificity, and the predictive values. Interestingly, the results for this study were that in the septic cases, so the 30 cases that were uh, diagnosed as PJI, the tissue cultures were positive in 93%, so 28 of 30, and then uh, swab cultures were only positive in 21 of the 30, so 70%. And then in the aseptic cases, they had tissue cultures positive in and swab cultures positive in 12%, which is actually an interesting finding and to me represents the likelihood of contamination of the swab. And obviously the higher specificity sensitivity 
and positive and negative predictive values for tissue culture were also seen, which basically just demonstrates the superiority of obtaining synovial tissue and, and sending that for culture as opposed to just swabbing tissue with a Q-tip. So the authors from this study concluded that the tissue cultures are better at identifying bacterial pathogens compared to swabs, though it may be more expensive. Swabs may have higher rates of contamination. And the limitations of this would be they obviously had positive cultures in their aseptic group. Whether or not that represents a truly infected joint or contamination on the tissue swab cultures is undetermined. And then they only kept their cultures for five days to reduce contaminants, but less virulent organisms like proprio-bacterium acnes can take up to 14 days to grow. So that could potentially inflate false negatives. I think the impact of this is what I see in clinical practice at my institution, we uh, are routinely sending tissue for culture in addition to aspirating every joint. I think this is just one of those foundational studies to me that explains why we're sending tissue and not just fluid with every revision case that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I would just add like, like you guys at your institution, we're definitely relying on the tissue cultures that we're obtaining either intraoperatively and then any aspiration you obtain either pre-op. But it's interesting every time you're as a consult resident this year, getting consulted in the ED for a PGI concern, you'll see a lot of the emergency medicine doctors have swabbed the, an open wound or something, but this is kind of important study that says reliability for the tissue, the swab cultures, it's, they're not very helpful in predicting infection. So pretty good study here. Yeah, I think it's relatively basic, but it's helpful. And at least for me, help me understand why we do some of the things we do in the OR. And then this is, I, I love this study. This is every orthopedic surgeon's favorite study. It's why we love ANSEF and why they love making memes about orthopods and cephalosporin antibiotics. This is a 2019 John Cardinley award-winning paper, Proceedings of the Hip Society, published in JBJS, titled Increased Risk of PJI Following Primary Total Hip and Knee Arthroplasty with the use of alternative antibiotics to cefazolin, published by Wiles et al. out of uh, the Mayo Clinic, retrospective study of almost 30,000 total joints, hips, and knees done at a single institution. So a little bit of background, we've talked about PJI and its implications. Obviously, we use antimicrobial prophylaxis for all orthopedic surgeries, especially where we're putting in implants. These have a low adverse effect profile and provide excellent coverage for the gram-positive bacteria that are most commonly seen in PJI, which would be Staph aureus, Staph epi and skin flora. And then I'm sure anybody who's currently in residency or in medical school sees patient charts all the time that are flagged with penicillin allergies. And a lot of these patients, if they truly have an allergy to cefazolin, vancomycin, or clinda are the alternatives. And it's also been studied that there's very limited cross-reactivity between penicillin and those who are truly penicillin allergic and cephalosporin. But it is still a risk that some providers don't want to take, especially if the patient's asleep and intubated. And a lot of times what we'll find out is the circulating nurse will say, oh, this patient has a penicillin allergy. And we'll just do a quick chart review, look back at another surgery they've had and see that they've gotten ANSEP before or cefazolin and we still continue to administer it. But there are times where, you know, the anesthesia provider is uncomfortable, the attending surgeon is uncomfortable and they get clindamycin or they have to get vancomycin and we have to wait for the infusion. These allergy patients can become challenging and it's a lot more people than you think. So the authors of this study had three goals. They wanted to characterize the choice of antibiotics for perioperative prophylaxis and primary total hip and knee arthroplasty. Look at the efficacy of preoperative antibiotic allergy testing for the cohort of patients who have reported penicillin allergies, and then look at the rates of PJI based on the perioperative antibiotic that was given. Like I said, it's a retrospective review of nearly 30,000 total joints between 23,000 patients over a 13-year period. I think the highlight of this study is that because it's a single institution, they have granular data even in their registries, and they had an allergy testing registry 
data that was available in 2.5 thousand of these patients, which is 11% of their cohort. They combined the data from both these registries, the total joint registry and the allergy registry, to look at the outcome of the allergy consultation and then which antibiotic was given as well as infection-free survivorship. PJI was documented as a complication by third-party reviewers who went through all the charts of these 30,000 patients. If the patient was ever diagnosed with a PGI by a physician or had a documented positive synovial fluid culture from either an intraoperative or a clinically aspirated fluid specimen, that's how they were determined who had PJIs or not. And then they looked at MRSA colonization based on the perioperative nasal swabs. So the results of the nearly 30,000, I think it was 29,700 arthroplasties done, 95% received preoperative cefazolin and 5% received non-cefazolin antibiotics. Group that received non-cefazolin antibiotics uh, was more likely to be MRSA colonized, which makes sense because people are more likely to give vancomycin in that situation. And their interesting finding was that infection-free survivorship was higher in the cefazolin group than the non-cefazolin group at all time points out to 10 years. And that only increased out to 10 years. It was almost a 5 to 7% difference. And there was an increased rate of PGI in the non-cefazolin group. But they did an analysis to determine that it was not related to the MRSA colonization because none of those PGIs grew MRSA. And another interesting finding was that the preoperative allergy testing increased the number of patients who were given cefazolin by nearly 30%. The authors concluded that there's a lower rate of PGI, higher infection-free survivorship when cefazolin is used as perioperative prophylaxis in primary hips and knees. And the patients who were tested got cefazolin. Over 80% of the patients tested were able to get cefazolin in, in the setting of a preoperatively documented penicillin allergy. That's interesting because at our institution, we do MRSA tests to everybody. And I believe there was a point in time where there was, we would do preoperative vancomycin as opposed to cefazolin. But after this study came out, we started doing both cefazolin and vancomycin because the patients who don't get cefazolin are more likely to develop a PGI from non-MRSA non bacterias. So the cefazolin has a better coverage profile for non-methicillin-resistant gram-positive bacteria. The authors in this study recommended taking patients who have documented penicillin allergies and sending them for perioperative testing to clear that they can get a cefazolin, you know, which may or may not be applicable to all practices. But the main thing they recommend is giving first-generation cephalosporin with good gram-positive coverage and a safe adverse effect profile as prophylaxis for primary hip and knee arthroplasty. And obviously the strengths of this are the sample size, the granularity of their database and individual patient level data, as well as being able to marry their allergy registry to their joints registry. And then the limitations would be that they don't have enough data to know the causative organisms and susceptibilities of PJIs to look at resistance profiles. And this is may not be applicable internationally or other institutions who have different antibiotics that they use for surgical prophylaxis. But this is the study that I cite to the anesthesiologist that gives a little bit of pushback on dual antibiotics or doesn't quite understand why we want to give both vancomycin and cefazolin. If these patients end up with a PJI because they weren't given the appropriate prophylaxis, we're the ones who have to follow them in clinic and the patients have to deal with this horrible complication. This is just evidence to support our, our choice and that it's not just all memes and jokes about orthopedic surgeons loving. And I mean, takeaway, big takeaway for all of us here is ANSEP is very effective at doing what we need it to do. And just so I heard correctly, so I mean, you guys, so for nasal swap positive MRSA, you give them VINC and then also ANSEP. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, we do both. Interesting. I got to go back and see, I guess I maybe didn't notice if we're doing that, but I don't think we do that here at Loyola, but I'm going to go back and take a look. That's interesting. 
the only time we do not give ANSEP is if they have documented anaphylaxis to a penicillin antibiotic, which, and even in those situations, according to this study, we could be sending those people to preoperative allergy testing. I just don't think we have a streamlined process like the Mayo Clinic where somebody can get into an allergy testing and get tested quickly enough to get surgery without delaying our attendance mm -hmm. or our schedules. Yeah, for sure. Right. So I, I guess, Nigel, when you're your fourth year going to be an intern next year, when you're in the ORs next year and your attending's not there and the anesthesiologist asks you what you want to give for antibiotics or if you want to give it, uh, I guess now you know what your, if you're not sure what your best shot answer is, it's going to be ANSEP. All right, man? Definitely saying ANSEP. All right. We'll see you all for the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. And really thank you all for listening to another episode of our, well, really the first episode of our adult reconstruction citation classics. Hope you learned a lot about periprosthetic joint infections, because uh, I know I did <laughs> listening to this episode. Uh, so without further ado, if you have not already, please subscribe. Please go and leave a review. Let us know how much you enjoyed listening to this episode, and we'll see you all next time.